The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. And by stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and have your postal carrier pick up the packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code CULTUREFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Prime Directive Edition. It's Wednesday, March 19th, 2014. On today's show, The Americans. It's a show on FX entering its second season. It's about deep cover Soviet spies, and it's excellent. And then we'll discuss Amazon.com. Will it destroy literature as we come to know it since the Gutenberg Revolution? And finally, trigger warnings. Are they the latest frontier in empathy, or are they PC on steroids. Joining me today is Slate's deputy editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Dana Stevens, Slate's uh, film critic. Dana, hi. Hey, Steve. All right. Well, let's uh, dig right in. The Americans is an FX TV show. It's entering its second season. It stars Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese as a married couple who, uh, in America, in Washington, D.C., in the Washington, D.C. area, who are actually, in actuality, deep cover Soviet spies. They've been embedded in the United States for something like 15 years when the show opens. It's a period piece takes place in the early Reagan years, and uh, they've completely normalized themselves as American citizens. They're raising children who, of course, are completely in the dark as to their true identities. And in the middle of the marriage is a schism opening up between the father, who's beginning to like living in a capitalist uh, and open society, and the wife, played by Carrie Russell, quite well by Carrie Russell, who's uh, still committed to defending her motherland. This is what I pick up from having watched only the pilot of the show, and I defend myself for having only watched the pilot of the show, because once I watched it, Julia Turner, I was completely, utterly crushed out on this. I think it is terrific television, and I don't want it spoiled. So you are you are going to have to step gingerly around my ignorance during this segment. But I'm as excited you're about this. You're such a romantic about the show. You're you're like the ruthless critic, except for when you fall in love with the TV show, and you're like, oh, I can't I can't jump ahead in the narrative. It's charming. Withhold and then swoon. That's that's the key to being a romantic, Julia. But I think we'll get through this segment without... I think there's some brooding in there, too, usually, Steve. <laughs> that helps as well. But tell me, I, I you presumably, you're caught up to... You're contemporaneous with the show in its run. Am I right to be this swoony for it? I think this is a very strong and interesting show, which, as far as I've watched in the second season, seems to only be getting stronger. We should acknowledge here that it's created by Joe Weisberg, who is the brother of Jacob Weisberg, the chairman of the Slate Group. But uh, I've never met Joe Weisberg. And, you know, I, I think my view of the show is independent of that fact. The thing I like best about it is that it is simultaneously a show about politics and about marriage. And instead of having kind of soap opera relations that allow among the characters that allow for a lot of spy hijinks with crazy wigs and dark alleys and getaways and car chases. The show uses crazy wigs and getaways and car chases as a way of talking about marriage. I mean, to me, the 80s backdrop and the Cold War backdrop end up being just an amazing lens through which to view the strange relationship between these two people and, you know, the fundamental alienness of turning two lives into one life, which is what the 
you know, project of marriage is. And I think it's a show that actually has really interesting things to say. I feel like that's my divide with Prestige Cable. Many, many shows are being made now that are glossy, fascinating, fun, and thrilling to watch. Some of them have a point of view about the world and interesting things to convey to us, and others do not. And I think this is a show with interesting things to tell us about humans and how we interact. Mm -hmm. I agree. Dana, before we get to your uh, valued opinion, why don't we listen to a clip from the show? Do you know where your father is? Uh, He's upstairs. Well, do we have visitors already? Uh, Yeah, this is Stan. Hey. Phil Jennings. How you doing, Stan Beeman? Uh, My wife, Elizabeth Page Henry. Hi. Hi. Hey, Henry. Hello. Are those brownies? Homemade. Matt? Mm. Your mom's a good cook? Yes. Okay. I should have taken them. Thank you. Oh, that was a good brownie, huh? Yeah. So this is a pretty good neighborhood we moved into, huh? Wouldn't live anywhere else. You know, safe, clean, commute to D.C. is not too bad. Do you work in the city? I do. What do do you do, Stan? I'm an FBI agent. FBI? Wow. What, What do you... Catch bank robbers and stuff? Actually, I work in counterintelligence now. Counterintelligence? That's, that's against spies, right? Exactly. Ooh. Have to make sure I don't do any spying around here. <laughs> oh, you better not. Especially for those Russians. Oh, yeah, they're the, they're the worst, right? Oh, they certainly are, Philip. They certainly are. They not, I uh, have been enlightened by Julia Turner as to one reason I love the show, which is that there is something fundamentally strange about constantly taking on a second self in the act of marriage, right? That you're achieving some ultimate intimacy, but you're also occasionally bumping up against its limits and therefore coming up against a kind of ultimate alienation. I don't know. I'm sort of riffing now on what you said because it blew my mind. But I I do think that that's why I love the show. And I'm wondering if that's why maybe you do. You know, before I respond, I should probably note that I do slightly know Joe Weisberg. His kid goes to my kid's school and they play together sometimes and we're sort of friends. I wish we were better friends, but he's too busy making his show and I'm too busy making the Gab Fest. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that gets at the originality of the show for sure. But I think we should also not neglect the extent to which the, the spy hijinks are just fascinating and juicy in and of themselves. I mean, there's a lot by the time we get to the second season and I've watched every episode now. I'm obsessed with the show. By the time we get to the second season, there's a lot of double A agent, triple agent, you know, people mutually betraying each other in, you know, mutual fake affairs. And I won't bring in all the spoilers, Steve, that you don't want to know about. But let's just say that Elizabeth and Philip, these two characters, start to have all kinds of of separate lives and to be managing, you know, a lot of different falls in the air at once. And so that stuff is all really fun, too. If you watched it with no sort of um, metaphorical intent about, you know, marriage allegories whatsoever, you would still have a great time with this show. One other thing that I find super enjoyable about the show is its portrayal of the 80s. As we move on in time, we're suddenly getting period renderings. I guess you old folks have seen this happen more so than I have, but I'm suddenly encountering period pieces set in times that I actually physically remember. The Americans gives us a, a technicolor portrait of the 80s, Farrah Fawcett hair, amazing 80s bedspreads. There's a lot of material culture represented on the show in in a fascinating way. Steve, I know you can't give us any hints from your tome about the 80s that you're concocting, but I'm curious, as our resident 80s expert, what you make of this show's portrait of that time. I love it. Um, it, It's the perfect time to set the show. It's a very canny choice on the part of, uh, of the creator. Um, you know, the 80s are obviously the last decade of the Cold War. 
And after periods of thaw and detente and a lot of uh, negotiated you know, missile treaties, Reagan came in and he was adamant that he was, A, going to call out the Soviet empire as evil. He was going to have no truck with communism or detente. And B, that as one method of attempting to run them into the ground, run their economy into the ground, he was going to massively hike the American defense budget and in a game of, you know, sort of reignite the Cold War, at least retrospectively, people believe this might have been strategic in an attempt to uh, force them to keep up with us and thereby divert precious resources within an efficient and crumbling economy and bring them to their knees. And, and in some ways it worked. So uh, it's a perfect time to do it because not only is it so intrinsically interesting to see this marriage, which is divided in this fascinating way, and these people are spies and on and on. It's such a beautiful setup. It's just perfectly timed for that moment when anti-communism made a resurgence within the United States. So that's perfect. And then secondly, the culture became vastly more self-consciously materialistic in the 80s, unapologetically materialistic under Reagan. So all of the things I imagine that that drive Carrie, the Carrie Russell character, the woman who's more faithful to communism in the motherland, all the things that drive her crazy about a capitalist society are only going to get that more intense as the show goes along. So uh, I think it's just a great choice and so far so good. One thing that I'm intrigued about in season two and that I think speaks to the show's ambitions is that they're really bringing the children to the fore in a fundamental way. These two have entered into a false marriage and born two American children who are at root cover. They exist as cover for spies. Like their genesis into the world is not because two loving people created baby humans. And these, you know, ultimate cover creatures are growing up into teenagers who are beginning to have questions about their parents' weird moments of urgent insistence and strange doings in the laundry room. And I think in the same way that spycraft became a metaphor for marriage in season one, I think season two is beginning to play with the fundamental alienation between parents and children. And anytime you have children, fundamentally, you're acting from motives in your own life because the child doesn't exist yet to have its own motives. So that fundamental tension is getting played with in a super fascinating way. Oh, it's so, I agree with you totally, Julie. It's so ripe. I mean, it was ex- it was exploited beautifully in The Sopranos. I mean, I remember in one of the very early episodes of season one of The Sopranos, the daughter's name is Meadow, I believe, takes the junior aside and says, you know what our what our father does? And he's complete classic younger sibling. He's completely in the dark. Uh, and and you just that was just done so beautifully. You know, in The Sopranos, is Meadow, Meadow clearly is an Ivy League mind and temperament. And, and Junior is kind of a gaudy junior type who probably doesn't have much of a, you know, capacity for life outside of what his father has done and may not have much capacity within it. That was just done so beautifully. It's set up exactly the same way in this show, Dana. I mean, what what is going to happen to these kids? On what premise are they going to make their own lives? I mean, it's just, it's so beautifully teed up. I really think it's it's intriguing. Well, you'll see in the second season, Steve, that the, the kids come much more into play in the, the spy plot as well and start to start to come under threat. And uh, that's also interesting in that it tests the Carrie Russell, Elizabeth character's relationship to her children. Because as you mentioned earlier, she is, you know, pretty much an ice-cold ideological devotee to the motherland, right? Much more so than her husband, who is starting to enjoy the creature comforts of living in the U.S. And so there's there's some something of a question as to whether to what her children mean to her in the first season, right? Because she's she's just so single minded and monomaniacal about about spying. And so in the second season, when they start to come under pressure, it's also a, a great revelation about her character. I love that that Carrie Russell character, even though the the, the show does function on the absolutely absurd assumption that the ninety eight pound Carrie Russell can essentially best any opponent in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> I, that is the one 
thing that gave me pause about the show, which is the is is the concession to some of the genre needs. So Carrie Russell being able to kick serious ass, uh, you know, I was like, okay, I'll sit through this. But I will say the show has a patina of authenticity for a very specific reason, which is uh, Joe Weisberg, the creator, was himself in the CIA. So therefore, hence it's a patina of um, of authenticity. And he came out of the cold and wrote a book about it and uh, and now has created this so hence it's verisimilitude um all right well we like it it's called the americans it's on fx it's entering its second season it is starting i you you know heard it here first it's starting to get that kind of buzzy buzz that uh, i remember breaking bad starting to get in its second season it might be that good tell us what you think come to our facebook page facebook.com slash culture fest did we swoon too hard or not hard enough let us know All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Our sponsor this week, Steve, is Audible.com, which is the Internet's leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment. They have more than 150,000 titles available for listeners, and you can use whatever it is you're using to listen to us right now to consume all kinds of wonderful books and other content. Here at the Culture Gab Fest, we have been compiling for our listeners the Culture Gab Fest bucket list. This is the set of things that you must read if you want to be a culturally wise and savvy person, or if you want to be even worthy to sit down and have dinner with uh, Stephen Metcalf uh, over canapes. So this week, Dana has a recommendation for us. Dana, what is your addition to the Culture Gabfest bucket list? All right. I'm going to go old school this week, and I'm going to recommend for the bucket list a book that completely changed my life when I read it in, in college the first year. Um, it's probably the reason that I ended up majoring in medieval studies and being interested in the medieval period. It's The Confessions of St. Augustine, which is the memoir, I guess you'd call it, if in the fourth century included such a thing as memoirs, of St. Augustine, who went on to be a great father of the Christian church, but who had a very checkered youth, which he describes very juicily in the first 10 books of the Confessions. And it's just this remarkably modern feeling book. It really feels like the story of a specific life and, you know, a life that's obviously from a very different time and place. He was from North Africa and lived in the fourth century AD. But that still rings completely true, that the bad things that he does, the absolution that he seeks, his temptations and his struggles are all just completely still alive. And it was it was a book that really changed my life when I when I first read it. So The Confessions of St. Augustine by St. Augustine is on Audible, uh, unabridged and narrated by Simon Vance. It takes 12 hours to listen to it. And that's my bucket list contribution for the week. That sounds like a great one. Thanks, Dana. Uh, and just a reminder, the deal you can get is a free audiobook and a 30-day trial, and you can get them today by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. So sign right up. You can join in our Culture Gap Fest bucket list readathon at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. Before we go back to Steve for our second segment, I also have one more pitch slash announcement slash endorsement that I'm just going to hijack the show and jump in to make. Slate has launched a new parenting podcast called Mom and Dad Are Fighting. It features Allison Benedict, who for a while was a regular on the Double X Gab Fest, and Dan Coyce, who you can frequently hear on our Audio Book Club podcast. And they are both incredibly lively, funny people. And as is revealed on this great new parenting podcast called Mom and Dad Are Fighting, they are not afraid to tell the unvarnished truth, or at least a hilariously, seemingly unvarnished truth about their parenting triumphs, challenges, foibles, philosophies and all else. Uh, They talk very wonderfully about what's going on in their own families. They do great interviews with all kinds of interesting parenting experts. Uh, and they tackle what is just an incredibly rich territory with Verve and Brio. They, for a while, were part of the Double X feed, so that if you got the Double X Gab Fest feed, you would automatically get them. But they recently 
changed format. So you need to get the Slate Daily podcast or sign up directly for them by searching for Mom and Dad Are Fighting or Slate Mom and Dad in iTunes. And that should pull up the show and you can subscribe directly. I can't endorse it highly enough. All right, Steve, let's do topic two. All right, Julia, thank you so much. Moving on. Book publishing is a very human business, and Amazon is an octopus for whom books are less the best of what's been thought and said than widgets, or maybe even worse, a Trojan horse, a means for becoming the Walmart of the ethersphere. Amazon.com has just raised the price of its Prime membership from $79 to $99. That's our excuse for talking about this. But as background, Julia, we all read George Packer's uh, remarkable, long, and reported piece about Amazon. Uh, Cheap words, Amazon is good for customers, but is it good for books? Julia, I have to believe that a savvy uh, person such as yourself is a member of Amazon Prime. Are you? And were you put out by this $20 hike? So I am 100% a member of Amazon Prime. And Slate created a widget when the news of this price hike went up that allowed you to check how many orders you'd done in the past year to figure out whether Amazon Prime was worth it for you, whether the free shipping equaled out. And I found, I think the equilibrium number is is somewhere between 25 and 35. If you've done in that range of orders, it's worth it for you to do Amazon Prime. My household with the advent of twin babies had done 106 orders at Amazon last year, which means I think something was (laughs) arriving at our house from Amazon every three days all year long. (laughs) So yeah, I'm deep in Jeff Bezos's thrall. Dana, are you an Amazon Prime member? I am not. And after reading George Packer's expose of what goes on behind the scenes at Amazon, there is no way I'm joining Prime at any price. And I think I will never order a book from Amazon again. I can't guarantee I'll never order anything because Amazon has its tentacles in every part of our consciousness. And I think I have a movie on rental from Amazon right now. But when it comes to straight up books, I'm going to Powell's Books or to my local bookstore. All right. Mm -hmm. She was persuaded by the Packer. Steve, where does your household fall on the Primometer? Uh, I'm very close to what Dana just said, I must admit, which is that uh, we're prime members. We use it so relentlessly, we'll probably be the first one to beta test the drone delivery system. That's not at all close to what I said. Yeah, that's what I said. No, I, no I, I'm getting there. <laughs> but ideologically, you're, you're nonetheless pure. You're getting there. <laughs> no, can I? How about if I finish my sentence and then you crap all over it? First? <laughs> then you get to crap over that's the, the whole That's the time-honored method. Thought, as opposed to just half the thought. Go right ahead. Here's the second part of the thought, which is that I will not order a freshly published new book off of Amazon no matter what. I will go to an independent bookstore and have them order it for me if they don't have it in stock, period, end of story. Therefore, I share some of Dana's Park Slope ideological rigidity, and I also have some of the supple, pragmatic expediency of a soulless person like Julia Turner. (laughs) The perfect combo. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, That's Metcalf Prime right there. Metcalf Prime. Prime Metcalf. I'm curious about the George Packer piece. It sounds, Dana, like you thought it was very persuasive. Well, I mean, it's not making any argument that I think I didn't know already, which is just that the culture of Amazon is utterly uninterested in and, and actually to a greater degree than I would have thought antithetical to the business of book publishing. But some of the descriptions of chicanery and the kind of trickery that goes on with, you know, buy buttons being taken off of books because Jeff Bezos didn't like the deal that he got with a certain publisher or some of the descriptions of the labor conditions at Amazon, which, again, have been widely reported. But just to see it all conglomerated in one place, it, it just gave me a very bad feeling about the company. But Dana, don't you think that, I mean, my takeaway from the piece was that because Amazon has made books incidental to it, I can make books incidental to Amazon, that, that, that they're relatively indifferent to books. And therefore, it, I, don't, I don't need to use it for that. 
I can ignore the fact that they are insensitive to books because I don't use them to procure them. But there is something sinister about how they want to get into publishing. Their indifference to books actually now has been surmounted to the degree that they themselves want to become a content, quote-unquote, content provider in the, quote-unquote, book space, language that makes one shudder. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the um, George Packer piece is worth reading, I think, if you care about Amazon or are interested in it. It runs down in a clear way a number of the different debates about Amazon over the years, from how it got into the book business, its various fights with book publishing, the attempt by book publishers to work with Apple to raise the price of ebooks. It touches on some of the warehouse conditions that sound horrendous and have been reported on elsewhere. It's it's a good rundown of these various issues. I will take some issue with George Packer's tone throughout the piece. I sort of wish that someone had written a version of this piece who seemed to have less of a dog in the fight. The piece takes almost as a given that the best means of discovering talent and producing great books is the business model perpetuated by New York Book Publishing and that any ways in which it has been prodded to change or shift in response to the rise of digital books or the rise of Amazon are an unmitigated force for bad and decline and evil and woe. And, you know, as I think our listeners know, I do not think that technology is the end of all things. It certainly sounds like Amazon's been a bully, but there was some lamenting of tone. There was there was like a whole long opening to the piece where you know, there was reminiscing about the glory days when there were real editors from real New York who went to Seattle to write all the book blurbs and conduct real interviews with Toni Morrison that appeared on the Amazon homepage. And it's like, who cares? I mean, I do not care that there are no longer interviews with Toni Morrison on the Amazon homepage or that Amazon's book blog is not prominently featured. I'm not going to Amazon for its book blog. I don't mind that Amazon doesn't have a prominent book blog that I care about. On top of which, you know, to date the decline of the publishing industry to, you know, Amazon's decision not to support a cadre of in-house critics and and to interview Toni Morrison, that is not where the decline of the book business came about. I mean, people have been writing elegies to book publishing now for 20 years. It really began, if if you had to be you know, mournful about it and nostalgic about it, you really would date it to the corporate ownership and consolidation that began in the 70s and 80s. And since then, profit margins have been under huge pressure. uh, And editors have been under huge pressure. They're under totally different time pressures. They don't really edit that much anymore. They don't nurture talent. And furthermore, the old business model of having a gigantic backlist filled with books that have survived uh, the decades, the catchers in the rye, you know, catcher in the rye or, you know, name five. I mean, every publishing house has dozens of those, right? And you, you're all your fixed costs on that have been paid off. And they're just free cash flow by which you get to go and scout new talent. And you waste an enormous amount of money giving book advances to writers who may not go anywhere on their first, second, third or fourth book, but maybe hit on their fifth book. I mean, the aura of sleepiness literary care and patience did all go together once and did create, I think, a beautiful culture of literariness and literary hope that fresh Salingers and fresh Faulkners were out there and could be nurtured and found. And it is, I do think, in some substantial way gone. But I don't know that Amazon was the principal villain in that story. Right. And one thing that's actually fascinating about Amazon, which our former colleague Matthew Iglesias has written about smartly, is that Amazon is actually not relentlessly pursuing profit margins. Amazon relentlessly pursues pleasing consumers in the interest of getting ever more consumers. And of course, the fear is that once they have us all 
under lock and key, then they will flip the switch and raise the prices and, and rake in gajillions of profits. But for a company that is so well regarded by Wall Street, they have been remarkably willing to have very, very small profit margins on the sheer gajillions of dollars they're raking in in terms of revenue. And Matthew Iglesias argued in a long piece on their latest earnings report for us that you know, this is fundamentally a smart move by Bezos to invest in attracting consumers by giving them what they want, you know, as a as a mechanism that has served to give consumers what they want on the Internet. I mean, it's deeply powerful, as both the Steve and Julia households can attest. Right. I mean, I think in some ways, because they've kept margins so low, they're creating almost unrealistic expectations of what we should be able to expect from Internet commerce and Internet shopping. They recently acquired diapers.com, which is like the single greatest invention for parents, which Mm -hmm. if you place an order in New York City before 9 a.m., they deliver it to you before the end of the day. I mean, this sort of same day. But my complete expectation that my every consumer need can be met by the Internet if I'm no matter how disorganized I am, if I pay my prime membership, I'll just be able to get whatever the hell I want whenever I want it. I've become such a brat as a consumer as a result of Amazon. I want everything now. I don't want to have to plan in advance. I don't want to have to go anywhere. I don't have to leave my house. I don't have to get dressed. I They have turned me into a monster, and I'm a very happy mm-hmm. monster because my needs are mostly met. Well, and this is what you keep reading industry analysts saying about this this price hike, which is, after all, a 25% price hike in Prime membership that, you know, a lot of people are just going to go with it because they're too addicted to buying things online to, to reconsider. I mean, talk about antitrust. What, an, what Amazon is trying to do is to go way beyond being an online store and become this sort of... I don't know what you would even call it. Yes, an, an, an online need meter for any <laughs> conceivable need that one could have. And then by creating that loyal of a customer base, you can raise the prime rates as high as you want or prices themselves. Yeah, I, I, my, ten, my um, inclination in the face of these arguments is to split the argument really into two pieces. One is really a kind of Walmartization of commerce that includes – Amazon, because Amazon's becoming the Walmart of, uh, of the internet. And that's really an argument about deflation moving its way up the supply chain uh, and, uh, and then to carve out an intelligent discussion of the future of book publishing and the place of book pu- publishing and books and serious books in the culture. They will find their way into the hands of serious readers. Now, how many serious readers there are in America, whether or not they have an actual physical place to go to in order to meet other serious readers, such as independent bookstores, those are urgent questions, but I don't know that they're necessarily the same question. You know, Starbucks was thought to put the mom-and-pop coffee shop under terminal assault, and it turned out to be exactly the opposite. This has been studied to death, and apparently it's led to a resurgence in interest in coffee, which led to a resurgence in interest in better coffee shops, or at least more idiosyncratically distinctive coffee shops than Starbucks. And so the coffee culture has thrived. There's no reason something that superficially seems to be quite an assault on literary culture can't reinterest people in books as a way of living more than just as a, as a solitary activity. So I'm, I come out of it hopeful, uh, even though I appreciated uh, George Packer's uh, really extraordinarily well-reported piece. All right, well, uh, the piece, once again, is Cheap Words, Amazon is Good for Customers, Is It Good for Books? It was by George Packer in the February 17th, 2014 issue of The New Yorker. It's a great piece of journalism. Read it. And then come and tell us what you think about book culture and whether or not you will change your habits in the face of Amazon.com's omnivorous ambitions. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. Well, all right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? 
All right. Our second sponsor of the week, Steve, is Stamps.com. And before I get into telling our listeners a little bit more about it, I, I need to give them a nudge because apparently the results have come in and our friends and rivals at the Political Gab Fest are having so much more luck having their listeners sign up for Stamps.com. I don't know what's going on, Culture Fest listeners. Are you not sending freshly baked brownies to your great aunt? Do you not send birthday presents to your godchildren? Are you not starting small businesses like a future Jeff Bezosian corporate titans? I'm, I'm not sure what exactly is going on, but you should check out Stamps.com, which is a particularly great opportunity for people starting small businesses. It can be tough deciding where to focus your resources when you're launching a business. But one thing is for sure, you do not need to waste valuable time going to the post office for mailing and shipping. Stamps.com will allow you to access all the services of the post office right from your desk 24-7. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and get posted for any letter or package or any class of mail all for just a fraction of the cost of an expensive postage meter. With Stamps.com, you will never have to go to the post office again, and you can spend your time on what matters most, whether it is brownie baking or small business launching. Right now, you can use our promo code CULTUREFEST for a special offer that includes a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 worth of free postage. So for all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. And before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in CULTUREFEST. Again, that is CULTUREFEST. Our political rivals are putting us to shame. So type in CULTUREFEST at stamps.com. All right, Steve, what's our third topic? All right, thanks, Julia. Moving on. Avid readers of the Internet will likely have come across the alert trigger warning, signaling that the blog post or article may contain disturbing themes that can provoke traumatic memories in the reader. Now, apparently, trigger warnings are migrating from the Internet into elite colleges and the classrooms. Some professors are now offering trigger warnings at the beginning of lectures, saying things along the lines of the content of this lecture may trigger the onset of symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Dana, I scarcely know what to make of this issue. I have taught hundreds upon hundreds of university students over the last 20, 25 years of my life. It always seemed to me that it was incumbent upon me to have internalized the sensitivities of whatever generation I was speaking to and to talk in a aware manner. However, the formalizing of it seems to push the boundary in a direction some people are uncomfortable with. Uh, is this PC on steroids or is this just common courtesy? Well, you know, as I gather, the trigger warning originated in a very specific place. It originated in places like feminist blogs, you know, spaces where people were going specifically to post or to talk about experiences that they'd been through that, you know, the trigger warnings were meant to protect against. And especially, I think, at the beginning, they were meant to protect against graphic content, which I can completely understand as someone who hates when I click through to a news story about a bombing or a war and see some horrible picture of a dismembered person. I mean, in, insofar as they might keep someone from clicking on an image that they don't want to see because it's too disturbing for them, I completely understand the origin of the trigger warning. I do wonder, though, about it starting to migrate to, as you say, syllabuses and college courses or journalistic pieces. People have protested. Um, there were also some complaints, I understand, about the, the third season of Downton Abbey, which included a rape plot line, and people thought that the show itself should have included a trigger warning before it aired. I think that starts to get into an area, I, I wouldn't quite call it censorship, but it does seem to be an area where freedom of speech is being impinged by the possible sensitivities of some viewers. The smartest thing I think I've read about this or the smartest comment I've seen on this was a post from an editor at Jezebel responding to a very stupid post opposing to trigger warnings. So if we can follow the genealogy through trigger warnings as they've started to emerge 
from the kind of more cloistered fringes of the internet into sort of the general internet, general interest internet, and the classroom at the same time, it seems to me. And someone wrote a post saying, these are stupid, a bunch of like sensitive people should just get over their rapes already and not need trigger warnings. I mean, it was like the worst possible piece arguing that trigger warnings are stupid and useless. And there was a Jezebel post saying, this is a dumb post. It does not further the conversation. The question of whether these should be allowed is very real. It needs to be thoughtfully considered. Here at Jezebel, we've considered it and decided not to do trigger warnings because we feel that the headlines of our post should provide sufficient information for a reader to determine whether this is a post that they should avoid given their own sensitivities. And to me, that seemed so smart. The thing that bothers me about trigger warnings, when I first started seeing them on the internet, they drove me crazy. I thought it was just like batshit inane political correctness. And I say this as someone who went to Brown and is very comfortable with with things going pretty far in this direction. It just seemed... And, and is kind of batshit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know batshit when I see it. I mean, it just seemed like offensively prissy to me. Like it seemed appalling to find it in a journalistic context. It galled me when I first encountered them. I thought they were stupid. And then upon thinking about it more and recognizing the context they come from, I understand a little bit more about how they could be useful to some readers in some places. But what bothers me about them, I realize, is fundamentally more editorial than functional. To me, they seem like they really don't serve much of a purpose beyond the headline because it's impossible to know what specifically may trigger any particular person to have a horrible flashback to whatever bad experience they may have had. For one thing, the range of bad experiences that can be had by people in the world and that they may not want to reflect on is infinite. It's impossible for any individual writer, editor, teacher, professor, any person who puts content forth to be consumed to anticipate every possible negative outcome. So if you are you know, writing a headline for the piece that you are presenting on the internet, Presumably, there is some, you know, suggestion of what the subject matter of it is, and a sensitive reader can take a look at that and make their own decision. So as I thought this through, I figured out, I think that what galls me about the trigger warning is its editorial redundance, that it seems not to actually serve to help the people who it claims to be helping. Instead, it seems to serve as a signifier saying, I am the sort of person, place, journalistic entity, teacher, who wants to be seen as helpful to those people. It seems more concerned with the appearance of the person purveying the information than it does in actually helping specific individuals. And that's what bothers me about it. Yeah, I think that's beautifully put, uh, Julia. And this this dovetails with my two reactions to it. The first is that I'd use an allergy metaphor. There are some kids that are actually uh, dangerously, lethally allergic to peanuts and various other substances, eggs, on and on and on. Then a kind of culture of sensitivity develops around that, and a lot of parents begin uh, not exposing their kids to certain foods. And there's just somewhere along the way there, there's a dividing line between a medical necessity and a neurosis, all of which would be innocent if you didn't, in fact, begin to create the sensitivity in the child, that in fact, by not exposing them to certain things, they become all but allergic to it when they are exposed. Uh, and I think that, that that holds up as a metaphor for you know the way we treat young developing minds within a university context. If you're constantly telling them and reinforcing the idea that their mind is this painfully sensitive, triggerable entity, that's the kind of mind they're going to develop. And this gets to a second issue, which is, this is, a, to me, and this is a very idiosyncratic take on this, but I see this as a generational power struggle with the kind of quasi-pastoral authority that professors have. They're encountering young young minds that have been trained principally by the mass media and their peers and would like to show up 
at a university and essentially tell their professors how to talk to them. And it seems to me it's just a shift that's gone on since the 60s, accelerated since the 80s, whereby the discourse of the college classroom, that the temper of it has become dictated increasingly by the quote-unquote consumer. And to me, that is totally baleful. Yeah, I mean, I hear you, Steve. The other thing, though, I think is we are all coming from a certain generation or at least several generations of academia that are a bit far from the current context. And even in hearing my own critique, you know, I think some defenders of this practice would probably say conveying to your audience that you are concerned about the experience and needs of victims is in of itself a valuable thing to do. So the split that I pointed out that it seems more like a signifier of what sort of person you want to be perceived to be versus an actual useful thing for victims. I think there are probably some people who would offer the counter argument that even saying, hey, I care about the experience of victims. I you know, want you to know that you should come talk to me if you have an issue. It sort of signifies an openness towards that experience that may in and of itself have value. All right. Well, it is a complicated topic. We don't pretend to have all the answers. Uh, I will say one place to go to begin learning about it is uh, the article that the New Republic ran on it uh, back in their March 3rd issue. It's called Trigger Happy. The trigger warning has spread from blogs to college classes. Can it be stopped by uh, Jenny Jarvie? It's a good piece, an interesting piece, uh, and it's getting a lot of buzzy buzz around the Internet. Go read it and tell us what you thought of it. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Okay. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse day. No, 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 no. What do you have? All right. My endorsement today is going to take some courage because I have to pretend for the length of one sentence that I understand the big discovery in astronomy and physics that happened this week, which actually Phil Plate, Slate's astronomy blogger, has written some wonderful explanatory posts about, but I cannot explain it. You guys know what I'm talking about. The fraction of the second, the beginning of the universe, the gravitational waves. They found those ripples. They found ripples, which prove something that happened in the fraction of a second after the universe began with the Big Bang, the inflation theory. Okay, I hope you guys know what I'm talking about, because clearly I can't explain it. But what I'm endorsing is not an explanation of this mysterious, inexplicable event, but rather a little clip that I found on Kotke.org, the wonderful blog this morning, of the Stanford professor, Andre Lind, who's a physics professor, who came up with a theory essentially predicting this discovery around 30 years ago and you know has been sort of waiting for the proof to come in and maybe thinking that it never would. And there's a wonderful moment when a younger professor at Stanford knocks on his door. It's, it's, like, it's like a sweepstakes commercial or something. Knocks <laughs> on the guy's door. The physics professor and his wife answer the door. She is also a physics professor. And they stand there and hear, you know, this, to me, inexplicable explanation of the fact that his theory has proven to be true. And it's just such a wonderful moment. They're speechless. They hug. They get teary. They drink champagne. They talk about what it means to them that, you know, this theory has been vindicated. And just to... To see these people whose minds are capable of thinking out the origin of the universe and what happened in the fraction of a second after everything began to exist and just having a champagne toast to their correctness is just it's a beautiful thing. Oh, and getting Ed McMahon to knock on the door. <laughs> With a big novelty check in hand. <laughs> That's really what they're in exactly. it for, understanding. It's not understanding the origins of the universe. It's just the novelty checks. So anyway, org link to it, and we'll put a link on our show page so you can all watch and weep along. Oh, that is so excellent. Julia, what do you have? Well, because I am a, you know, soulless bot, I've gone in recently for the quantified self. I edited Seth Stevenson's piece for us about fitness trackers. You know about these things? They're like little pendants that you wear, and they track your steps, and they track your miles walked, and they track your sleep, and they track your pulse, and this, that, and the other. Um, and in the wake of editing the piece, I decided that I wanted I wanted to quantify my own life. So I got the Fitbit Flex 
which is one that he recommended, is not the Fitbit Force, which is the one that was recently recalled for giving everybody strange rashes. And uh, it's really fun. I can't imagine that either of you would like it, actually. I'm, I, I'm not sure if you guys see data as your friend, but maybe you would. I don't know. I, it, it syncs up with a little app in your phone, and you know you can see how many steps did you walk, and it, it does change your decisions. You think, oh, maybe I'll go out for lunch today instead of ordering delivery, or uh, instead of taking two trains with a shorter walk, maybe I'll walk further and, and take one train home. It is a little morsel of information in my day that does affect the decisions I make and change my behavior. And it's getting me to be a little bit more active than I was in my hibernating, sedentary, take cabs all the time winter self. So I recommend fitness trackers if you if you think you would enjoy quantifying your own experience. Insofar as it allows you to be smug about your fitness without really doing anything extra, <laughs> I think I approve of that. Although, you know, the thing is, they, the, the star- starting goal for the flex is 10,000 steps a day, which is so many steps. I basically only hit 10,000 steps a day on weekends when I'm running around after my children and taking epic walks in hopes of lulling them to sleep. There's no way in my daily life of, of taking a pretty long walk to and from subways to and from work. It still only adds up to like three and a quarter miles. What if you shuffled along and took really tiny little steps? Could you cheat the <laughs> Fitbit thing? I have not tried to massage the data in that way. I think it might be too life inconveniencing. But anyway, they're really fun. If, if you are hooked on them, let me know on the Facebook page. I'm curious to hear about your experiences. I love it. Um, okay. Well, my endorsement is uh, my eight-year-old daughter, my daughter who went from seven to being eight, on her birthday demanded a karaoke party. And I have never really done karaoke before, but I discovered what the real joy of karaoke is. It's not caterwauling these songs a half a note or half an octave off key. What it is, is is discovering your and your party guest's true karaoke self. It's all about discovering your karaoke self because you think your karaoke self is going to be one thing and it turns out to be something completely different. So I wanted my karaoke self to be, you know, either Paul Westerberg or Bruce Springsteen. It turns uh-huh. out it's John Cougar Mellencamp. <laughs> and, but there's something, there's like growth inherent in discovering your karaoke self. Unless, of course, you can actually sing. And our lovely ex-nanny, Susanna Bortner, came up for the weekend to our house to celebrate my daughter's eighth birthday. And in addition to being many wonderful things, she's an incredible singer. And so, of course, your karaoke self is whatever you want it to be if you're really a good singer. And for that night, her karaoke self was Petula Clark. And the song was Don't Sleep in the Subway, a song I had never heard before. I had no idea. And as she was singing it, I thought this almost has to be a Petula Clark song. Um, And it has these Beach Boy chord changes and beautifully sort of lilting and sad lyrics. And um, you don't have to have Susanna Bortner come to your house and sing it to you. Petula Clark recorded it quite well also. It's such a great song. So I'm going to endorse Discovering Your Karaoke Self. And additionally, the song Don't Sleep in the Subway, but Petula Clark is a great tune. Can I say that I think like the greatest psychological problem in my life is that I have never discovered my karaoke self? I've like yet to have a karaoke experience where I really fully... I think that that's just, that's like my major psychic torment. All right, that does it. We're doing a karaoke segment. I was already thinking that during Steve's endorsement, but if Julia hasn't discovered her karaoke self, I mean, come on. Who's your karaoke self? Well, (laughs) good question. What do I always sing? I usually sing a Chrissy Hines song. I can do a good Pretenders. (laughs) I mean, if your karaoke self is Chrissy Hines, of course you love karaoke. That's amazing. You looked in the mirror and saw the person you wanted to see. I think Brass in Pocket is my most common karaoke choice. I love that song. Uh, All right. Well, Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Julia, thanks a lot. Thanks, guys.
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Schechtman. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, and Mike Pesca, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Got press in pocket. Got battle. I am going to use it. Intention. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.